Good evening. I'm Pastor Eric Corbett, and for uh, Pastor Rick this evening, Pastor Associate Pastor Eric Corbett. And um, turn with me, if you would, to Second uh, Peter, chapter 3, and I will read verses 1 through 11. This evening's message is called, entitled, Are You Ready?, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So our, our key verse for our text tonight is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 which says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So Jesus Christ is coming back. And just as sure as he came the first time, he's coming back a second time. And the Bible conveys that the second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent, meaning that he could come back at any time and that his appearance will be sudden. There are times in life where something happens all of a sudden. Sometimes you can't be prepared for a sudden occurrence, and you just have to react or adjust. Did everybody remember to turn their ringer off? <laughs> that would be an example of a sudden uh, thing that happens, and you just got to adjust. Uh, so even though things can happen suddenly, we can still at times make preparations to mitigate or eliminate not being able to recover from the surprise. So like not getting severely injured in a car accident because you've already put on your seatbelt. Um, there are all sorts of things that we make preparations for in life, and often we do these things on a daily basis. So how much more important is it to be ready for the return of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the reality of the return. The second coming was foretold just as Christ's first coming was. Jesus spoke about it, and in Matthew chapter four, 24, excuse me, verse 30, he says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, 
and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great, with power and great glory. So here Jesus, of course, is uh, indicating that he is coming again. The angels that appeared to the disciples as Jesus ascended into heaven attested to his returning as well. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we read, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then the apostles um, all reiterated and attested to the fact of Jesus' return. This is the apostle John speaking in his first letter. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He writes, writing to the church, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but when we know that But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the second coming of Jesus Christ is clearly taught in Scripture, and it's a fundamental truth of our faith. God said it, so it's going to happen. We can count on that. However, there are people who still scoff at the idea that Jesus will return. But the Bible predicted this ahead of time also. And Peter writes about these very people, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is verses 3 and 4. It reads, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So these people are trying to make the argument that because he hasn't returned yet, he must not be coming, and that the second coming must not be true. And that's a, that's a pretty shaky argument. But there are people like this today that uh, don't believe that Jesus is returning. Uh, there are those that mock Christ. They mock Christianity. Uh, they mock all of the things that we believe. But there are also those who, who don't verbalize their disbelief about the second coming, but their actions portray this. So the things that they do or the things that they don't do uh, demonstrate that they don't really believe or think that he's coming back again. And the number of people who are making the shift from biblical Christianity but still claim Christianity continue to increase all the time. So you have people that claim to be Christians, but yet they dismiss things that are clearly stated in the Scripture, uh, things that are clearly indicating of of Christ's uh, first coming and his return. And so um, Peter addresses this argument that they put forth uh, doubting the Lord's return by reminding us of this. And this is in Second Peter uh, 3, verse 8. He says, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So God is the creator. He's the creator. He's the owner and the controller of time. So he's not subject to anybody else's timetable. He, he created time, as a matter of fact, indeed for us, so that we can have a, a way to gauge things in life. And... Um, It's his prerogative to take his time, and often he does uh, from our perspective. Sometimes God seems like he can work really, really slow. It doesn't seem like he's moving at all, but in fact, he is is working. He's always working on our behalf because that's who he is. But he knows what the proper and the right time is to act, 
And sometimes there are things that we want that, um, you know, it's, it's better for us not to have when we want them immediately. And so uh, God is in control of these things, and he knows just uh, what to do and when to do it, and his timing is always perfect. And in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 36, uh, it tells us that the exact timing of Jesus' return uh, won't be disclosed ahead of time. We're not going to know when he's coming. Of course, there are people throughout the ages um, who have tried to predict the actual date and time, the day and the hour that Jesus is going to return. They've all been wrong, and anyone else who continues to try to do that will always be wrong because that is not something God has disclosed. Uh, he's kept that to himself. He's not even revealed it to, to the Son nor the angels. That's something that the Father has reserved for his own. But um, although we know, uh, we're told that no man knows the day or the hour, God knows. And when that day comes, it's, it's going to be a day of judgment. And so for the believer, the return of Jesus Christ is to be what we long and what we hope for. Uh, we love him. And uh, we know who he is. We know that uh, he, is, he is working and, and building a wonderful place for us uh, in heaven, uh, a home. He's been working on it for over 2,000 years. It's going to be something. And um, so we're waiting for his return. We look for that. Uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, it reads uh, that those who love the Lord are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we know that we'll either experience the Lord coming for his church to take us all out of here at once. That will be the rapture, um, which is uh, something that we look for. I know I look for it more and more every day. Um, or he'll call us home to be with him uh, individually. And, of course, you know, um, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so God loves us. And uh, either way, we're going to be home with him at some point. But he's in control of that. And so we have to wait. <laughs> but there's things to do while we wait. And so, um, again, Jesus will return. And um, we should be looking forward to that, to being with him whenever that time comes. Or at least we should be. So when he does return, it's going to be a time, again, as I said before, of judgment. There's going to be a reckoning. He's going he's gonna to write a lot of things that aren't right right now. And you don't have to look very far to see that there's a lot that's going on right now that just, it just ain't right. And it seems to be getting worse uh, with every day. And it's, it's amazing how, uh, how evil is able to parade itself and to have this room. But God has allowed it for his purposes. And so he's lining other things up at the same time. And so these things are hard for us to watch and to see and to be involved with and experience. And they come our way. We're all impacted uh, in different ways. But uh, the Lord is, is faithful, and he knows what we're going through. He knows what we can bear. And he is, again, working things uh, according to his plan. But when he does come, he's going to set some things uh, in line. And so the purpose of the first coming of Jesus Christ was to be the Savior of the world. And he won the victory over sin. He conquered death. And um, he foretold that, um, that that was what was going to happen through the prophet Isaiah. And as uh, quoting Isaiah, we read Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 4. This is at the early part of his ministry. 
And in Luke chapter 4, I'll pick it up. And he came into the synagogue, and I'll pick it up in verse 17. And it says, and he, speaking of Jesus, was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And then he reads what Isaiah prophesied. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So Jesus, of course, um, confirming the prophecy that foretold of what his ministry would be about. But the interesting thing is, is, is it says that, that when he read that last line, um, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he closed the book. You know, of course, it wasn't a book like we have. It was a scroll rolled up uh, big. And, um, but that wasn't all that was written in the original prophecy. If, if we go to Isaiah chapter 61 and, and we look at uh, verse 2, it says, after to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the very next thing that reads, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus stopped short of that next clause because that wasn't what he was here for the first time. He was here, of course, uh, to, to do what he did, which was to win victory over sin. Had he continued reading and then, of course, affirmed it by saying, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, then uh, it would have been bad news for everybody, especially those that were in the synagogue that day. They wouldn't have been marveling at his gracious words. They would have been looking for the nearest exit. And so um, so when he comes the second time, he's going to complete that that was foretold. Uh, the day of vengeance of our God, where he's going to pronounce judgment on all of those who reject him. And um, it was the mercy of God to send his son to first provide salvation for sin before pronouncing his judgment on sinners. It wasn't that God said, you know what, this is it. I'm just going to do away with them all. Uh, I'm going to wipe out humanity. No, he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to address sin to give them an opportunity first. And it's the mercy and the grace of God that, that does that because that's God's heart. He's not out to destroy first off. Uh, but again, he is, he is God and he is righteous and he is holy. And so he must deal with sin. You know, uh, Abraham in, in Genesis um, <clears throat> when he was uh, having his dialogue with the Lord before the Lord was going to, uh, to judge Sodom. And, of course, we were familiar with that where he's back and forth. And, and Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, it's really a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. The judge of all the earth will always do right. He will not judge the righteous with the wicked. Because if he was not righteous, if he wasn't just, then he doesn't have the right to be the judge of all the earth. Can you imagine if God was wicked, being almighty, being all-knowing, having having authority over everything in every aspect of, of creation, and if he was evil, that would be horrible. That We wouldn't want to exist, and he would not be worth my worship. But because he is good, then, yes, he, he can be the judge of all the earth because he's always going to do right. And so, so his judgment, of course, is just. And uh, 
again, his mercy uh, was to save sinners before pronouncing judgment. But now that salvation has been made available to all because Jesus completed his first mission, much of his next mission is going to be, again, a day of reckoning. So the second coming of Jesus Christ is often called the day of the Lord, which actually covers a significant amount of time and several events. And uh, during this period of time, God will deal with those who reject him. And I'll take a, a few of them, uh, a couple from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, speaking of the day of the Lord and, and how awful it's going to be. Isaiah writes, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Then Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Then we have in the New Testament, uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, this is verse 8, Paul writes about the coming of the Lord, and he says the Lord will be coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So it's going to be intense, and God's not going to be playing. He's going to come and to, to, to take care of things. Again, he's going to, to reckon and, and, and address all sorts of things that are wrong. And so God's judgment on those who have ultimately rejected his grace, mercy, and love will be judged because there's, there's no other option. If they've rejected those things, there's, there's nowhere else for them to go and nothing else for the Lord to do. And so his judgment is going to come, and it's going to come most unexpectedly. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, and he talks about the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's an expression that Jesus, of course, used. And so, you know, um, a thief in the night is not going to show up when he knows you're awake and you're at the windows watching. He's going to wait until you're not watching and catch you unexpectedly to, to have the most impact. And that's what the Lord describes as the coming of the day of the Lord. It's going to come and happen just like that. It's going to catch many off guard. And so the world carries on uh, with all its carousing, all its follies and, and busyness, its self-love and self-interest. And it's all going to come to a sudden halt when, halt when the Lord suddenly appears. All of the partying, all of the stuff that they're having a ball doing now um, is, is going to get shut down. It's going to be like it was when God destroyed the earth in the flood. And this is what Jesus says about the likeness of his second return to the days of Noah and the flood. This is from Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39. Jesus says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For in the days before the flood, excuse me, in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so, again, it's going to be swift. It's going to be unexpected. And for those who are not looking for the Lord, they are going to be caught completely off guard. And it, I, I can only imagine it's, it's going to be quite an eerie time. Um, I remember, you know, on 9-11 when that happened. It was such an eerie day and, and just a period. It was just, you know, you get the news of what had happened, and I was just glued to the TV once I got home. Um, and I was just kind of like in a fog because it's like this has never happened before. And the impact 
And some of you, of course, I'm sure remember that, how eerie that was. Well, this is going to be times of a thousand uh, on the level of eeriness. This is going to be on a whole different scale. So for those who will be here to experience God pouring out his judgments, we won't. Um, It'll be a horror like nothing else. You can read about many of the details, of course, in the book of the Revelation, uh, primarily in uh, chapters 6, 8, and 16. kind of lays out a lot of the judgments in detail. And it will be so terrible that those suffering under the judgment will cry out for relief from anywhere. They're just going to be looking for any kind of um, uh, relief. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, this is what it says that the people will be doing in a response to the judgment of the wrath that's being poured out on them. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? (laughs) These people would rather make an appeal to creation instead of making their appeal to the creator. Isn't that something? That, that, That with the intensity and the ferocity of this judgment, that instead of looking to the one that's pronouncing this judgment and maybe, just maybe, Asking for forgiveness, they will be released, and maybe he will show mercy. No, they don't do that. They make their appeal to an inanimate object because they they hate him so much. They don't even want to give him the satisfaction of potentially becoming or being merciful, showing them mercy. The hardness of the human heart and the evil and the wickedness is is astounding, and, and we see it right here. And these are the people that God is going to be pronouncing his judgment on. And again, you know, you know, it's 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 not an easy thing to think about and to look at and to read and to understand that God is going to be fierce in his judgment and and people are going to be destroyed. But you have to understand from God's perspective, he, he's holy. And, you know, one of the things that, that that blows me away is that, you know, God's love is so pure. It's so right there's nothing wrong with it. He doesn't, he doesn't say you have to earn my love. He doesn't, he doesn't make us do anything to obtain that love. He just loves because that's who he is. And it's, it's such a wonderful love. There's nothing to reject about it. There's absolutely nothing that you can say bad about God, first and foremost, but his love. And so it is, a, it is the highest crime to reject such a love. I mean, think about that. There's nothing to reject. There's nothing that you have to do. God is just giving it to you. And yet you not only reject it, but you you reject fully the one who's saying, I've made you the object of my love. And so that's why God's judgment is just for for the heart that says, nope, mm -mm, nope, you don't, you no, get away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't even want to admit that you exist. And that's the kind of heart that is going to fall under this, this judgment. And so, again, his, his judgment is going to be fierce, as we, as we read uh, some of the response of the people suffering at that time. But even death won't provide an escape from God's eternal judgment. 
And in Revelation chapter 20, we read about uh, the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The Apostle John writing, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here you have um, those who were dead, who probably, you know, at the time before their death, maybe, you know, said, yep, that's it, I'm done. And, of course, they were reserved until the day of judgment. And so when that day of judgment, which is coming, happens, um, death was no escape for them. And so there are those who believe that this life is all that there is. And it doesn't matter how you live or even how you die because that's it. So they live however they feel they want to live and have no regard for God, have no regard for, for really, for humanity. Uh, everything they do is self-serving. And the Bible clearly shows us that it does matter. Because death is not an escape. So man doesn't get to call the shots. This is God's creation, and he governs time, space, and all existence. There's no getting past God. Everyone will face him at some point. And if that doesn't happen until you die, it's, it's too late. Um, the only option is to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. That's, that's really what, what should happen, but of course it, it doesn't for everyone. But for the believer, you know, uh, it's different for us. So the world isn't looking for the return of Christ, and so they won't be ready when he comes. However, as believers, we're supposed to be ready for his return. Again, we're supposed to be looking for him. We can and should be ready, but why? Why is it that we should be ready for the Lord? Why, why is it that we should be looking for him? Number one, first and foremost, we, we love him. And that's the primary reason that we should be ready for him. You look forward to seeing someone you love. When, when there's time and distance uh, between you and the one that you love, you, you yearn and you long to be with that one. And so that's how it is for the believer in the heart, is that we long for the Lord because we, we love him. And, uh, but there's also another reason to be ready. Because we, as believers, also have a judgment to face. Now, God has promised his people that they will not have to endure his wrath. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it reads, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, in, in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes that it's Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So because Jesus took the full brunt of God's judgment for sin on the cross, all who trust in him have the penalty of sin washed away by his blood. And hallelujah. <laughs> Man. Um, so no Christian will face the great white throne judgment that we read about in chapter 20 of Revelation. However, every Christian 
will still face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment for sin leading to punishment, but it's a judgment of works leading to rewards. And we read a little bit about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll kind of park here for a little bit, uh, verses 11 through 15. Paul, of course, writing to this church, he says in verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as yet so as through fire. So coming to Christ and being saved is the starting point. That's the foundation. That's the foundation that's laid. It's Jesus Christ and salvation based upon him. And without a foundation, you can't build. And so that has to be established first. But if your foundation is in Christ, then you should also be building upon that foundation. That's, you, you've got to do more than just be saved. Uh, you should. We should be developing and maturing our life in Christ, and by doing so, we make ourselves more useful in service to him. So we should build upon the foundation that is him, that is Christ. But we also must be aware of what we're building with. So we can use cheap materials, or we can use materials that are strong, solid, and that will last. Well, what are some examples of cheap building materials? Well, Paul lists wood, hay, and straw. I like in the uh, uh, Old King James it says stubble. I just I like that better. So if I say that, know that I'm talking about straw. But he lists those those three materials, and those materials won't endure the test of time. Not to mention those kinds of things can't weather the sun, the rain, the heat and the cold, mold, uh, mildew, and insects. You know, termites, of course, love wood. And so these items are typically available in abundance and will have limited or low value. So these are materials that you really shouldn't select for building upon that foundation. They are, these are pictures or images like the things that we can allow in our lives that don't add any value to our life in Christ. So, you know, if you're using these substandard materials uh, to build on this life in Christ, then you won't be as effective as, as you should be or, or can be in Christ. And eventually, when you stand before the Lord, um, the Lord's going to test them and if they don't stand up through the fire, well, then they're, they're going to go away. And so these things are, again, they're not necessarily sinful, but they are things that aren't profitable. And Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Not all things were profitable. So that word edify means to build up. And Paul is saying that in Christ, because of his grace, he can do many things, but not everything he does would be productive, not for him or for others. And so there are things that Paul said, you know, I'm going to stay away from that. And that should be the same for us. There should be things that, are, that we recognize about ourselves and in our lives that we should just not indulge in or stay away from because they're not going to be good for us. They're not going to be good building materials. They'll be distractions or the worst, they could be stumbling blocks for ourselves or for others. And so... Just like Paul, 
Um, we are to be involved in building up or edifying one another, and we should be on guard for things that we can do but don't ultimately contribute to the building up of the body of Christ or our individual lives. So we should be on guard for anything that we do in service that has its motives in self and not in Christ. That's a good way to be building with something that's really not going to hold up at all, building on self. And this would include things that are not done by the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, but done in our own strength. And so there's many things that we can do. You know, we can exert pressure. The world has its sayings, you know, put some elbow grease on it, you know, put your back into it, all these things, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. All of these things are are representative of doing things in your own strength. Well, that's not supposed to be uh, what it is for the Christian. So things done in the Lord's name, but in our own strength, don't honor him and they don't please him. So maybe you've got a good idea for, you know, something in ministry, but it's not from the Lord. And you get going on it, and you say, I'm going to get all this together, and you start, (laughs) doesn't start moving well, and so you start pushing it uphill. And, boy, it's arduous. And you say, well, you know, you you finally kind of get it together, and it kind of sort of works, and kind of you finish, and you're like, okay, there it is. But how do you think something like that is going to hold up under the scrutiny of the, the Lord and his examination? It's not. And so it's better off to just skip that step and just to be trusting the Lord and let him lead you and and tell you what to use to build. So things like that, all those things are wood, hay, and straw, and they'll likely be burned up. They'll end up being wasted in the end and a waste of your time here. We're to constantly examine ourselves and to be checking in with the Lord to see if we're on the right track. That's a very good practice and discipline to, to develop. And that's what being led by the Lord is all about, listening to him, waiting for him, looking for his guidance, all the while, while we continue on doing what we know we're supposed to do, uh, you know, fulfilling our last orders until our orders change, but still, you know, having a sensitivity to the Lord and his leading, because sometimes the Lord, you know, will, will say you need to change directions, you need to slow down, you need to speed up, uh, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> you know his voice, you know, you know, he's... He is the good shepherd, and he knows his sheep by name, and uh, he, he, he speaks to us, and he leads us. And so we, we are very familiar with uh, enough with his ways to be able to follow him appropriately. But we still have to make that an effort. It doesn't come naturally. That's why it's spiritual. And so we should develop the habit of waiting on the Lord. One of my favorite verses, uh, as an early Christian, it really ministered to me. But speaking about waiting, it's a lot of emphasis here. David writes in Psalm 27, verse 14, he says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And I have had the Lord remind me of that more times than one. And so, uh, we should be willing to wait on the Lord, and we should also first look to God's word for guidance as well. Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 12 and 13, very familiar verses. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we are, again, going to give an account to the Lord. And um, so we can do that 
with confidence if we stick to his word and if we set our heart to to be sensitive to his spirit. And whatever we do when we do those things, trusting that the Lord is guiding us, trusting that we're doing what is what he expects of us, even though it may not be clear. Those things that we do in that way are precious in his sight, no matter how insignificant they may seem to be. Uh, an example would be the, the widow uh, casting in her, her two mites. She, she didn't know anybody was watching her. She just knew that she loved the Lord. She knew that this was all that she had. And even though it wasn't much, she loved the Lord. And she says, I'm going to give it to him. And, of course, the Lord took notice of that, and he pointed it out. So what do you think that's going to be in heaven when it comes to standing before the Lord? That's going to be gold, silver, or precious gems, maybe all three. And so we can, again, trust the Lord to lead and to guide us and for him to uh, direct us. So there's a right way to be ready. We want to be ready, and there's a right way to do that. The coming judgment of God upon sinners is, again, going to be just because he's holy and he must judge sin. And so Peter poses the question then that if there's a judgment coming on all the world and we as believers know it, then what kind of people should we be? It's, again, what he said. Well, in verse 11 of, of uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that um, what persons ought you to be in holy conduct? The word holy means separate or pure. Uh, again, God is holy. That means there's nothing like him. He is completely separate from everything else. There's nothing that even comes close to him. And when you talk about holy, he is the epitome of holy. Uh, even his name is holy, the Bible tells us. And because of that, he's pure. And then conduct, <clears throat> conduct is what, what you do or how you act. So Peter says we should be living lives that are separate from the world and its influence, especially in the light of the reality that a judgment is coming. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. He writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so God has an expectation that his people be holy like he is. He also says in verse 11 of 2 Peter chapter 3, that uh, we should be in holy conduct and godliness. And godliness, of course, is explained to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul writes this and he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in, in glory. Well, of course, who is that talking about? That's talking about the Lord Jesus. And so he is God who came in human flesh. Well, that's what godliness is. He's, he's the epitome of godliness. And godliness only comes from God himself. It's not an attribute that you can, you can proclaim yourself. You can't make yourself godly. You can't claim to be godly. No one can make themselves godly. You can only be godly if God lives in you. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And we are expected to resemble our heavenly Father, and we can because we have his spirit dwelling within us. So we're to live lives that reflect the glory of God. Well, how do we do this? By building on our foundation with good materials that endure, that gold, silver, and precious gems. 
A missionary of the late 19th and 20th century uh, named C.T. Studd said this. You've probably heard it. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. And so when we build upon this foundation, we want to make sure that we're building with good things because those are the only things that are going to last, and it has to come from a motive of a desire to please the Lord. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter writes this, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love, for if these things are yours and abound, you will, neither, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these things that Peter lists are added to that foundation that's already laid. They're added to that foundation in Christ, and, and, it's, and it's a building up. It's progressive. And uh, these are the type of things that are made of that gold, silver, and precious gems, and these are the things that will endure. So they will stand the test of fire because they come from the one who will test them. These are things that we, again, can't produce on our own. They come from the Lord. So one of the main differences between the two, gla- two classes of building materials that uh, Paul writes about in, in that wood, hay, and stubble, there it is, I said it, <laughs> wood, hay, and straw, and gold, silver, and precious gems, the difference is that the wood, hay, and straw are all things that are common, but they can all be cultivated. They are things that you can have a hand in producing yourself. You know, you can, you can harvest wood, you know, as building materials. You can go and, and collect, you know, uh, hay. You can go and collect stubble or straw. And uh, you can harvest these things of your, on your own. You know, you can grow them, actually, even. So you have a hand in producing those kinds of building materials yourself. Whereas the gold, silver, and precious gems, on the other hand, have to either be found, purchased, or given to you. You can't do anything to produce them on your own. You know, putting gold in the sun is not going to make it sprout gold leaf. <laughs> um, you know, if you water silver, it, it's not going to grow. You can water it all you want. You can plant precious gems in the ground. You're not going to get a field of precious gems. It's, it just doesn't work that way. There's nothing that you can do to, to create or, or obtain these on your own. They, they have to come from somewhere else, and, and God is the one that gives them to you. So if you're going to build well, you must get your materials from the master builder himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So the Lord will supply all that we need to bountifully live for him. So there's a reason for repentance, and um, we should be ready for the Lord's return at any given time, not only because we love him and because we'll stand before him and give an account as to how we served, but there's also another reason to be ready. Looking back at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it reads, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter here points to the patience of God, 
in his waiting to pronounce judgment on the world because it's God's desire that as many people as would be willing to turn to him, that they do so before it's too late. And we see God's heart here in that although he must judge sin, again, he is holy, he also wants to save all those who would come to him. As believers, we're to play a part in that process, and we're to be in a place where God can use us to reach those that will come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes, and he says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so this is a plea to, to the lost. This is a plea to the unbeliever. This is a plea to the one who thinks they're in right standing with God and have made up their own ideas about him, but it is wrong. We have a part to play in this. And that is an, another reason for us to be ready, to be ready to be used by God in this process. And we're to bring this message of Christ to the lost and to warn them of the judgment to come, but also let them know of the Savior that can deliver them from that coming judgment. And in order to do this, we must be ready when the time comes. And Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 reads, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so, as believers, we're supposed to be conscious of what's going on. Again, as we see what's going on around us in the world today, and it, and it pains and grieves us, uh, angers us even at times, we're not to lose sight of the fact that there are multitudes of lost people that are around us, that are going through the same things, and many of them are confused. Many of them have no idea really what's going on. They're missing uh, the, thing, the deeper things that are, that are taking place, and we're supposed to be the ones that are to be ready to, as the Lord opens the door, as he gives the opportunity, to share with them the love of this, this Jesus that we have, the one that we're looking for and waiting for his return. And, and we can do that, and God wants us to do that. And, and God will give us ample opportunities. And, you know, even, even if you don't ask him, we should be asking him. We should be praying for those that we know and see and encounter or, or maybe that we don't know. We should be praying, asking for God to, to, to use us in that way. But you don't have to ask. God sometimes will just, <laughs> he'll just bring somebody in your way. And, and I know for me, there's times when, you know, I could be kind of dense and I don't get it right away. And then all of a sudden I get this sense, oh, this is the Lord. He's in this. And, and hopefully I, I'll perk up and, and do what I'm supposed to do. Well, that's supposed to be the same for all of us. But we have to be ready. And in order to be ready, you need to be involved in that process of waiting on him, uh, abiding in his word, uh, that building process, that maturing, that adding to that foundation. And uh, I think that God really wants to begin to start turning things up again as things continue to get darker. So we are, again, living in times where evil continues to increase. And I believe that we're living not only in the last of the last days, but in the last of the last of the last days. I think we're really close. So it just seems like we're heading into a, a, a time and a place where the things that are going on just aren't going to be sustainable for any long period of time. Now, of course, the, the Lord can do what he wants, and he can, he can tarry, and it could be another 20, 30 years if, if he wants, but um, hopefully he won't take that long. But, um, uh, but again, um, we are 
likely very close to seeing the Lord Jesus come back. And we're to be ready. But again, there are multitudes of people that don't know Christ and still need him. And again, there's so many people who are confused about him and don't understand who he truly is. And actually, even there are those that profess to be Christians that are, that are mixed up about the truth of who Jesus is. So there's a lot of work to be done. And it's up to us to point to the scripture and to share God's word when we can, along with the witness of living out our lives for him in front of them. You know, one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have is the way that we live. And, you know, when you're in the workplace or in school, even in the home, if you have people who, who don't know the Lord, you know, they get to see your life close up. You know, I think of Joseph and Joseph's life was so solid because he was so solid in his relationship with the Lord that God just blessed him. And, and God can do the same thing with us. You know, we are the light of the world, and God is going to put his light in places where it can be seen. Because a city set on a hill is not easily hidden. And so wherever you are, you can have influence just with the life that you live in Christ. And so don't lose sight of that as well. But again, we're to abide in, in, in his word, and the Holy Spirit will do his work of convicting the world that they might believe. However, again, we have a part to play, and God wants to use us. And so in order for us to be effective, we must be looking for opportunities to minister to the lost, all while watching and waiting for the Lord's return. And I'll close with this verse. This is from James chapter 5, verse 8. James writes, and he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Are you ready? Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord the reality of your truth and your love and just your person and who you are is so powerful. And, and we're very grateful that you have invited us to allow us to, to come to know you. And for those of us who have received you, Lord, it is, it is a blessing, uh, blessings innumerable. And we, we do look forward to your return uh, to come for us, to take us with you as, as a church together, or if you come for us individually, but we know that uh, when that time comes, that we will be with you forever and ever. And so, Lord, as we wait for these things, there is, again, much work to do. May you guide us and direct us, teaching us as we grow and mature, as we walk with you. And, Lord, may you indeed use us. May you use our lives. May you use all of us, every part of us, Lord, for your glory, that you may bring many, many more into your fold, into your family, your household, as you have brought us so that when that time comes, there will be those that also will be rejoicing at your arrival and waiting for you and your return. May you bless us and may you get us home safely, we ask this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.